16. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 today in Numbers chapter 16. Again, some tremendous lessons I think we can learn from these Old Testament books. Um, I think one of the lessons that we uh, can relate to, I guess, is that uh, life can be frustrating at times. Can it not? Ever been frustrated? No, everybody's just calm, cool, collected, and, and uh, everything just goes smooth every day, right? Uh, well, I think uh, if you've ever been in a situation where you, you did what was right, you did what was good, but people got upset with you, uh, that's frustrating, isn't it? Or people tried to destroy you. Perhaps you had a boss that's hard to please. Uh, maybe you're a young person that uh, you can't seem to please your parents no matter what you do or your teachers. Uh, you might be a husband or a wife that has a spouse that's difficult to please. Uh, what do you do if you're in one of these situations? Uh, here in one of the most powerful and traumatic uh, chapters in the book of Numbers, we begin to find what we are to do and what God will do when we are maligned or confined or sidelined or treated like swine. You like that one? Uh, should have been a poet. Well... We will also learn what happens when someone rebels against God's will and his destiny for our life. The lessons and the insights, I think, are invaluable. And when we apply these lessons, it will promote growth and maturity in our Christian lives. Uh, we're reminded again of the relevance and the elegance and the significance and the substance and the prudence and the brilliance and the sustenance of God's holy word. Trust his word, as we just sang. Um, God's word is to be trusted and to believe, be believed and to be uh, lived by. Now, when you review the history of Israel from Egypt to Canaan, you discover uh, that this nation got into trouble every time they resisted the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And whenever God sought to build the people's faith by bringing them into a difficult situation... They immediately rebelled against Moses and Aaron, blamed them for their plight, made plans to return back to Egypt. No matter how much God did for them or taught them, Israel was not a spiritually minded people. Uh, they still had Egypt in their hearts. Uh, they had their uh, lust for idols that stayed with them even while they were marching through the wilderness. I believe that's a picture even of Christianity in many cases today. The large majority of Christians today are not spiritually minded. And there are a good many churches, even so-called Bible-believing churches, that are promoting a worldly mindset. And we hear a great deal uh, about uh, mega-churches and seeker-sensitive churches and, and not very many savior-sensitive churches. Well, the sign says... It's not all about you. It's all about God. We're not here to entertain you. Uh, we're not here to provide programs for your benefit. We're not here to make you feel good. And I'm afraid too much of Christianity today is 
What can the church do for me? What can I get out of this or that church? Well, it's not about you. It's about how God can and will change your life and give you real purpose for living by working through his word. Now, don't get me wrong. You are important to, the, to, the, uh, to God. God loves you. Uh, he sent his son to die for you and provide for you eternal life. And the problem is the same problem that the Israelites had. They had too much Egypt in their hearts. And Egypt is always a picture of the world in the scriptures. You know, we have too many Christians with the world in their hearts and their desire is not to serve, but to be served. You know, if the Lord were to come back today, I almost think that there would be a lot of disappointed Christians. Because they love this world so much and so much more than they love Christ. You say, well, I'm sure glad that's not a problem in this church. Listen to what I'm saying. That's exactly the problem that you, you and I can have very easily. If for no other reason, then it's my problem. But by the grace of God, I'm getting uh, up each morning and looking myself in the mirror and saying, it's not about you, it's about God. And in the spirit of Colossians chapter 3, we're to seek those things which are above. And think about God. And long for God. Now I want you to notice with me some lessons from Numbers chapter 16. First of all, the rebellion against Moses. Find this in chapter 16 and verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, and the sons of Eliab, and On, and the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. So here we have in chapter 16 a twofold rebellion. It's a religious revolt by Korah. He stands against the priesthood. It's considered despicable, so despicable that very little, or it's also recorded in the little book of Jude. In Jude chapter 1, which is only the chapter in the, in the book, but verse 11, it's, says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for their reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah, which is the New Testament spelling of the Old Testament name Korah. And so there you have a political revolt by Dathan and Abiram and On. They were Reubenites who opposed the leadership of Moses as the chief prince. They rallied 250 leaders in revolt. And that's what happens many times. Rebels will run in packs 
Rebellion has a rippling effect, and, and so we need to be careful that we don't run with rebels. But notice here about Korah, he was a notable leader. He was a notable leader. Who is this guy, Korah? Well, he must have been a pretty important person, especially for someone to be able to enlist the support of 250 men of renown from other tribes. And the fact that the text gives this genealogy is another hint that he was a very important man. We note that Korah was the cousin of Moses. His dad and Moses' dad were brothers, okay? That's how that works. We read in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 18, And the sons of Kohath, Amram, and Izhar, and Hebron, and the Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath were 130 and three years. And then in Numbers 26 and verse 59, And the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who her mother bare to Levi in Egypt, and she bare unto Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and Miriam, their sister. So uh, Korah was excluded from the priesthood. He was, it was given to Aaron instead, but Aaron did not seek the priesthood. God called him to it, and he gave it to him. It says in Hebrews 5, verse 4, that no man taketh his honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. That's what it says. Korah's name means hail or ice. So his name kind of reminds us of the coldness of a heart. And that's what sin will do to your heart. It'll make you cold. Cold hearted. So he's a notable leader. But secondly, he's a narcissistic leader. He's a narcissistic leader. A narcissistic leader is a leader who has an ego problem. A narcissist is an egotist. Uh, he's a, a person full of pride and vanity, and Korah rebelled against the position that God had placed him in, and he was leading a mutiny against divine destiny of his life. He had a different idea of how he should serve God and, than God did. And so the Kohathites were guardians of the temple treasures and were gar God's guardians of the ark, the holy vessels and the sacred furniture of the tabernacle. And this was a very important responsibility, but it wasn't good enough for Korah. Did not meet his expectations. And so the attitude of his life was not thy will, but my will be done. Now Dathan and Abiram and On had the same attitude as Korah did. They wanted a leadership position in the nation. Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on uh, were all great grandsons of Jacob. Dathan, Abiram, and on were frustrated Reubenites. Reuben was the firstborn of the family, yet he and his descendants did not enjoy the rights of the firstborn because of Reuben's sin with Bilhah. We read about that in Genesis chapter 35 and 1 Chronicles chapter 5. And all of these are reprimanded by Moses. Or excuse me, I should say they reprimanded Moses. Not by Moses, but they reprimanded Moses. Moses. Verse 3. They gathered themselves together against Moses. Against Aaron said unto them, Ye take too much upon you. The idea is the verse... Uh, this verse, Moses had taken too much authority. He had gone too far. He had gone out of bounds in making decisions. It's interesting to note that Abiram's name means father of loftiness. 
His name is formed from the Hebrew root word, which means to lift oneself up. His name is a reminder of pride. And pride, in pride, he lifted himself up. And the pride of these men would ruin them. And the pride in your life will ruin you. You say, well, I'm not proud and I'm proud of it. No, uh, very few of us recognize our pride. We think, well, everything's okay as long as we get what we want. Uh, We may not go around with our chest puffed out and saying we're number one, uh, but we're mighty concerned about ourselves, aren't we? Just the fact that we're basically selfish and we're all upset when things don't go our way. That's an indication of pride. Let me show you some identifying marks of the pride of Korah and those who sided with him in his rebellion. Notice, first of all, the pride of Korah uh, uh, shows us that they were thinking they knew the Lord's will better. They thought they knew the Lord's will better. And I think it's interesting to know, for some reason, they feel they know the Lord's will better than Moses. They covet power and prestige and position and popularity. They are having a mutiny against divine destiny. And the greater the power, the more dangerous the abuse of the power. Power has a way of intoxicating men. When a man is intoxicated by alcohol, he can recover. But when he's intoxicated by power, he seldom recovers. No man is wise enough nor good enough to be trusted with unlimited power. So they thought they knew better, they knew the Lord's will better than Moses did. Secondly, they had a lust for power which comes from weakness, not strength. A lust for power comes from weakness, not strength. You'll find that the lust of power is rooted in weakness, not in strength. Some people lust for power because they feel insecure with themselves and their circumstances. Someone has said, the quest for excellency is a mark of maturity. The quest for power is childish. Abe Lincoln said, nearly all men can withstand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Power and authority test the true character of a person. Power and authority test for pride and humility and love and selfishness and greed and generosity and kindness and harshness. Only those who do not desire power really fit to hold it. Listen, if you are promoted or given a higher position, let it be because God placed you in that position. Many times, those who gripe about prestigious positions are generally not qualified for that person or for that position, and that's the case here in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 3. There's also the tendency to rationalize sinfulness rationalize sinfulness the rebels claim that the entire congregation is holy you know false accusers tend to rationalize and justify their sinfulness the congregation was not holy and that's the reason why they were wandering in the wilderness These men were not as good as Moses, but that was their basic claim. Their attitude toward Moses was, who are you to tell us what to do? 
Proverbs 26, 24 says, He that hateth dissembleth with his lips and layeth up deceit within him. The person who hates tries to disguise his hate with his lips, but in his heart there is hate. And fourthly, unfulfilled expectations foster frustration. The unfulfilled expectations of these men fostered frustration and rebellion. They mutinied against divine destiny. And if we rebel, it will be, have the same effect upon us. And so instead of finding satisfaction and fulfillment in positions and possessions and people and prestige, God wants us to find fulfillment in doing His will and His destiny for us. Psalm 62 and verse 5 says, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is for him, from Him. We're just to be happy in knowing God. Philippians 3.10, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. There's another wonderful verse in Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. And God wants us to understand the truth of Philippians 1, 21. For me to live is position. Uh, for me to live is possessions. Uh, for me to live is people. Uh, for me to live is prestige. For me to live is popularity. For me to live is self. Is that what it says? No, it says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. It's not about you or what you want. It's about living for Christ. I wonder this morning, are you living for Christ or are you living for yourself? Now God wants us to also understand a truth that we find in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Turn there with me. Hold your place there in um, Numbers. But Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. It says God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And some of us have the, all, have the wrong idea about that. We think about all that God is going to give us. And we find ourselves thinking about earthly things again. Like we talked about in, in our Sunday school class. And we're making the earthly things our idols instead of worshiping God. We think that... We're going to, God's going to just give us things and possessions. We find ourselves thinking about that instead of the spiritual blessings that God has in store for those who completely surrender their lives to Him. Now, the blessing of this earth, I believe, uh, can be included in that promise, but certainly not to be our focus. And I don't believe it was the focus of the examples I've given you here. I think of Joseph. Joseph was not only delivered from prison, but in, he was put in a position of authority where he could save his own family. But that wasn't his desire. His desire wasn't to be in that position. 
He wasn't thinking about the world, but God put him in a place of authority where he could be a help to his family. Think about Job. He was not only delivered from his afflictions, but given double what he had before in children and livestock. The three Hebrew, uh, Hebrews in Babylon were not only delivered from the flames of the fiery furnace but by the Lord himself, but they were put in leadership in Babylon. Their testimony had an impact upon the king. Think of Daniel. Daniel was not only delivered from the lion's den, but his enemies were destroyed and he was promoted to a position of authority. I think of Esther and Mordecai. Saw the Lord destroy wicked Haman as he hung from the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. He also said the Lord would work out a way for the Jews to protect themselves from the royal law of execution and to legally destroy over 75,000 of their enemies with the Persian Empire. I think of also childless Hannah promised God that she would give her child to the Lord if he would only bless her with a baby. Samuel was born and she kept her word. God did not stop there. He gave her five more children, of which three were boys and two were girls. And five is the number of God's grace. And God has demonstrated his grace, was demonstrating his grace to Hannah in giving her exceedingly abundantly above all that she could ask or think. Now, in each one of these examples, it's all about serving God. It's not looking out for their own lives. What could be done for them? Uh, But God did great things for them and through them. It was all about because they were completely seeking to glorify God and not themselves. So you have the the rebellion of Korah. Notice, secondly, the response of Moses. The response of Moses, and it was we... Go on here in verses 4 through 11. We notice the response of Moses. Notice the calling on God. Calling on God. Verse 4 he says, And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show you who are his and who is holy and who will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom... He hath chosen, will he cause to come near unto him. This do. Take censers, Korah. Take censers, Korah and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye shall, you take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, ye sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you, but God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also? For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord, and what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? Moses responding to the challenge by taking the matter to the Lord first in prayer. And it was the Lord's problem. Moses knew that the Lord would deal with them. And so in verse 7 here we find that he rebukes these men. 
uh, he told them that they were the ones that had gone too far. Uh, They were out of bounds. And there's nothing wrong with God's man rebuking the rebels with the truth. In reality, Korah was actually guilty of the very thing that he had charged Moses with. Sometimes we are blind to our own sins when we condemn others. But God wants us to examine ourselves and deal with our own faults first before we deal with other people and their errors. In verse 3 through 5 of Matthew chapter 7, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye, thou hypocrite, First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. And so Moses responds here. And then secondly, he addresses contentment. There's a calling on God, and then there's an addressing of contentment. Moses addresses the issue of their discontentment with God's will for their lives and their greed for prominence in seeking the priesthood. He confronts their mutiny against divine destiny. Their discontentment led to a a desire for greater recognition, for influence, for prestige and coveting of what others had. And those who were discontented many times will blame others for their failure in not getting or achieving the goals of what they think they deserve. You know, discontentment will lead to a life of frustration and misery. God says, be content. You don't be content if you mutiny against the divine destiny of your life. Be content with God's will and the destiny he has for your life. First Timothy 6.6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is great gain because you have contentment. You have an inward satisfaction, a a sufficiency that keeps you at peace in spite of your outward circumstances. You know, when you have contentment, you have a quiet restfulness in the midst of changing events. Godliness with contentment is the wealth you have that is independent of your checkbook or your possessions. Contentment teaches us to do without and helps us to realize that things do not satisfy us. And so we save money not, uh, by not purchasing things we think we need. My granddaughter was saying something to her dad about an advertisement on TV. He said, you know, uh, you can get this uh, iPhone for 50% off. You know, and uh, he, her, she, he said to her, well, that's 50% that we'll save if we don't even buy it at all. That's 50% more than we have to, to spend. You know the, the advertisements. They say, buy this on sale and you save this much money. I wish I could have a bank account of all the money I've saved over the years. <laughs> My savings account isn't that big. So we save money by not purchasing things we think we need, but we really don't need them at all. And they don't make us happy. They don't make us content. Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I wonder, have you learned to be content where God has put you? You know, you can scan the scriptures and you can find a list of men uh, who've desired authority and power, but it left them empty. Think of Absalom. He tried to overthrow his father David. 
Uh, Adonijah claimed the crown in 1 Kings 1. Diotrephes loved the preeminence uh, in the church in 2 John. Uh, the disciples bickered uh, with one another. Who is going to be uh, the number one disciple? Who is going to sit next to, to the Lord? Now, those are just a few of the many examples who, of people who were discontented. And the most important place where you can be is where God wants you to be. God wants you to use your ability and your gifts for him. Don't go through life in a, in a mutiny against divine destiny and, and, a, and will for your life. It's, if it's God's will for you, he's going to open the door. So there's a calling on God, there's an addressing of contentment, and then there's the chain of command. Korah and the Reubenites were not willing to follow God's chain of command. God has a structure of authority and if it's not followed, then the result, usually, it will be chaos. God's chain of command is that parents are to lead their children. Children are to honor their parents. And things will go well with them. That's what God's word says. And if you go back to the parents, you need to live lives that are honorable and that are worth honoring. Wives are to follow their husbands. Citizens are to follow those in governmental authority as long as it does not contradict Scripture. The church is to follow the pastor. And even as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, if the pastor's not following Christ, uh, then, then you don't want to follow him. But follow him as long as he's following Christ. See, that's God's order. And it's clearly taught to us in the scriptures. Someone might ask, well, what if those in authority are wrong? What if they're abusive? The answer is God will firmly, decisively deal with them. He will get their attention. But let me ask you, are you following God's chain of command? You say, well, it's not fair. I'm my own person. I can do what I want. I don't need to follow anyone if I don't want to. You see, that's the problem. It's not about you. It's not about your will. It's not about your way. It's about following God, doing His will. Now there are some lessons, again, for us to look at the attitude of Korah and his followers. As we look at the lessons from Korah, there's lesson number one was don't focus on status. Don't focus on status and standing, but serving Submission and surrender to the Lord and those he has placed in authority over you. Secondly, don't fret over position. Don't fret over position, prestige, popularity, and perform, but, but on performing your duty and being pure, being punctual, being patient. Don't focus on self. Don't focus on your own importance and upon the interests and the needs of other people who, who need your love. And encouragement and help. We, there's where our focus ought to be. Just think about how much of an encouragement you can be to someone when you're not worried about yourself. And you begin to show them some love and some kindness and some forgiveness and some help. You know, helping others with their problems helps you forget your own problems. Or at least it helps make them seem insignificant. Sometimes we're so worried about our own problems, we don't see the problems of a, of a, a fellow believer that they may have, and they may need our encouragement, they may need our help. 
Don't focus on self. And then, fourthly, don't funnel your energy on your rank. Don't funnel your energy on your rank. Your reputation is important, but it's not something to focus on. If you take your eyes off yourself and you focus your energy on others, your reputation will take care of itself. Funnel your energy energy on reverence for the Lord, on your responsibilities, on being a faithful, reliable servant. Uh, Jeremiah 45 verse 5 says, And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not, for behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord, but thy life will I give unto thee for a prey in all places where whither thou goest. And if you will put your sights on being a servant, God will take care of your promotion. Psalm 75 Verse 6 and 7 says, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. And so I wonder this morning, do you have a servant's attitude toward the Lord? Or are you just worried about you? How anything and everything is going to affect you? If you want to know genuine peace and joy... The key is a servant's heart. You can never know peace when you mutiny against the divine destiny in your life. Put your life into the hand of the Lord today. Do you remember Andrew? How many of you remember Andrew in the Bible? What book did he write? Uh, What church did he pastor? Which conference did he speak at? None. You know what? Andrew was just an ordinary guy with a selfless heart. And I trust that that is something that we'll take note of this morning. A selfless person or an ordinary person with a selfless heart. Let's bow our heads.